Many people say you should not count on sponsorship money when you first start podcasting. After reading Stephen Westner's book, Profitable Podcasting, specifically the chapter on sponsorships, I wanted to learn more. In it, he shares insights from sponsorship expert Linda Hollander. And I was so impressed by what I read that like any good journalist, I decided I should go find her. So I invited her on the show, and the result is the conversation you're going to hear today. What's become crystal clear to me is that landing sponsorship deals is doable, especially if you know your audience. And I mean truly know your audience and know the demographic of the people that you serve. Bottom line, regardless of how long you've been podcasting, sponsorships could be a phenomenal way to bring in recurring revenue. The key is to have a proven strategy. Because as Linda will tell you, you may not get a second shot. So doing it right the first time is absolutely critical. We cover a ton of ground in our discussion, but like her book, Corporate Sponsorships and Three Easy Steps, it can be broken down into a very, very simple step-by-step process. Number one, how do you find the right sponsors to begin with? And make sure that you prepare before you start reaching out to them. Number two, how do you create an industry standard sponsorship proposal? And of course, the negotiation that goes along with that. And number three, how do you keep your sponsors for the long term by promoting them in the right way and by communicating with them throughout the process so that they're constantly reminded of just how valuable you are? I got to tell you, I've been excited to share this episode ever since I recorded the interview. So let's jump straight in to the conversation. Linda, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Hey, great to be here, Billy. Yeah, I'm so excited. So your book is game-changing, absolutely game-changing. Thank you for sending it. And I'm so excited to talk about the principles and dive in. Before we get into that, I want to go back in time to when you were 13 years old and you were having recess and your friend, Cheryl, asked you to have lunch. You said that's the beginning of your story. Why is that so important to you? (laughs) Because Cheryl and I became bonded We became closer than sisters. We were best friends all through. We were the original BFFs through middle school, junior high, high school. We did go to different colleges, but we knew that when we grew up, if we did anything together, it would be absolutely phenomenal. And then we ended up even going into business together. Oh, wow. What a great story. And I know you have always had this entrepreneurial spirit, but you got caught in a job that you call it an abrasive relationship with your boss. It got so bad at one point you had to be locked up in kind of a close room with him and you felt like you were in a fishbowl. And at the same time, you were in a relationship that wasn't good. And you finally said enough is enough. And that led you to your journey as an entrepreneur. What was the final, final straw that led you to say, I want to be doing something for myself. I want to live my legacy. 
<laughs> well, first of all, I had two failed businesses before I took that job and it was very devastating. So I want to let people know that it's okay to fail. Of course, it doesn't feel good and it doesn't feel good when you fail publicly, when you tell everybody, hey, I'm going to start this great business and it doesn't work. One of them was a greeting card business. One of them was a giftware business because everybody who saw me draw or saw me paint as a child said, my dear, you have to become a professional artist. And that is what I studied in college. I studied art and I took no business courses. I thought business was boring. Mm. I worked in galleries. Fortunately, when I'm working in galleries, I did learn sales and I had a talent for sales. So I knew that whatever I did, I can always find work because people always need somebody to sell for them. But then I, of course, I said, well, let's strike out on my own and start these businesses. But the businesses uh, did not work. So I took that job. And it was just a really toxic situation. I had to work with people I didn't like. And sometimes at lunch, I would just go down to my car and cry. And mm. then I was in that abusive relationship for four years because basically I had no self-confidence. The one thing that precipitated me leaving that job was my boss moving in with me <laughs> in the same office. And I had kind of a Jerry Maguire ending where I said, forget it, I can't be here anymore. I had no job to go to when I broke up with the abusive boyfriend. I had no other relationship to go to, but I just kind of knew that everything would work out for me. Mm. I love your story and I relate to it, especially this part of your story where you, we always have naysayers in our lives. We have people who say we can't do something or we shouldn't do something. And usually they're the closest people to us. They're our family. They're our close friends. The other thing I relate to is this whole business class thing. I started as an econ major and quickly realized I wasn't jiving with the, that kind of class. So I got into film and you grew up with art being a center point, as you've just said. I know one of the people who's both special in your life, but also was that early naysayer is your father. Can you talk about your relationship with him and how that played a role in your life? Yeah. Well, I've always had kind of a good relationship with my dad and I admire him very much. And my father is all of five foot three. He's a very small man and I'm not even five feet tall. So <laughs> I definitely take after him in a lot of ways. But after the two failed businesses, I said, dad, I'm going to start another business. And remember, all I had was art school training. So what would you say to a crazy kid who said, okay, I'm going to do another one? He said, you're crazy. He said, you're not qualified. You're living in a dream. And it was really, really hurtful to me. And we didn't talk for about a year. We had a rift between us. I didn't really come to family functions. But I got to tell you that my father, he did come around. He called me. And he said, I am so sorry for anything that I said that was hurtful to you. And Linda, I am so proud of you. And I want everybody who's listening to this, if you have children, please tell them how proud you are of them every day because they are mm. dying to hear it. I thought my heart would absolutely burst wide open when he said that. And now... My dad is my biggest fan. We're so close. It's embarrassing. I have a daddy date every Sunday. Oh. And he's really helping me through this time, the pandemic, because Linda, he says, I grew up in the depression. We mm. didn't have podcasts. We didn't have uh, <laughs> touch with people. We had bread lines and we were so isolated. I want to tell people that are listening to us, maybe you have a great support system, 
Maybe you don't. And I didn't. I didn't have the support of my family. So I listened to things like this podcast. I went to entrepreneurial groups. I found a group of people who could support me and hold my business in light. So you've got to find that group who can support you and who you can learn from. And also remember the people in your life have an agenda. My dad had an agenda. He was being a protective dad. He didn't want to see me fail again. He didn't want to see me get hurt. I see that now, but I was a little too immature to see it at the time. Mm, Yeah. And I think they do have our best interest at heart and it just comes out in a different way. By the way, you like you're an emotive person. And so, uh, you know, I relate to that sales side. You found your sales side. I found my sales side. You say sponsorships is the relationship business. And we'll get into that in a minute. Before we get into that, you know, the other thing that you talk about as you got this third business idea, which was your bag business, you said you were there with your cat, your cat's your business partner, kind of sitting on your kitchen table. And you had this idea and you became your name and and your brand. You became the wealthy bag lady. Talk about that experience and then how that led to the Women's Small Business Expo, which really opened your eyes to this world of sponsorship? Well, the bag business was a business that I started with my best friend, Cheryl. Being an artist, I had always collected bags with beautiful graphics. And one day my mother, you're a survivor of a Jewish mother, you'll know what I'm talking about, said, I'm coming by your apartment. Now I was living in a little rent controlled apartment. And what do you do with everything that's laying around? I had all these bags laying around. So I put them in the closet And I'm cleaning up for my mother coming over and all the bags came cascading out of that closet. So, I mean, your next business idea might not hit you in the head like it hit me in the head. But I said, hey, somebody's got to do these. So my partner and I, we researched it for about a year and then we went into business together and we had an actual location with a showroom, with printing facilities, with office space. And it was a great business. And it's so amazing working with your best friend. And then one of my clients one day said, hey, you're not just a bag lady, you're a wealthy bag lady, because people (laughs) would come and they wouldn't just order bags. They'd say, Linda, how do I do sales? How do I do marketing? And I loved coaching. I loved mentoring them. So that's when I came up with the idea of the Women's Small Business Expo, because I wanted to show women what I had done, becoming empowered financially through starting your own business and succeeding in that business. By the way, I was able to leave my little rent-controlled apartment and buy my first home as a single woman. I traveled the world. All of the good things in my life happened when I made that decision to strike out on my own and start a business. Such an inspiring story. And so you have this new business, which is a a business where you help other entrepreneurs. And one of the things I really love about your book and your story is that it's not just about sponsorship. You talk a lot about mindset. And you said just a few minutes ago that you used a lot of different strategies and approaches and, and things that would help you with your mindset, whether that be books like Think and Grow Rich or seminars or events that you attended. But when you got this idea for this Women's Small Business Expo, you knew, or you at least really early on figured out you needed sponsors. And I think this is another thing that you highlight is a lot of, a lot of times these events happen and one of the biggest pitfalls are missing ingredients is this lack of a really robust sponsorship side to it. How did you figure that out that you needed the sponsors? And then I know you had, you know, Bank of America, Walmart, IBM in those early days. How did you figure out how to approach them? Because you didn't know at the time 
you've, you've crafted that skill and you built that skill over time. But then how did you do it? Well, I was out of the bag business at the time. I had done the business for a long time. And I told my business partner, I said, look, I want to write books. I want to speak. I want to do events. I want to move on to something else. So she said, great. And I was at home with this idea for the Women's Small Business Expo. Now, I looked at the cost of putting on the kind of event that I wanted to put on, which was absolutely first rate. And I said, oh, my God, how am I to get all this money? So then I started researching sponsors and I found that sponsors will fund and underwrite your business, your event, your podcast. If you're a social influencer, I work with a lot of social influencers doing podcasts and blogs and Facebook Live and things like that. Your charity, your nonprofit charity, your projects, because I work with documentary filmmakers. If you want to be a speaker, if you want to be an author, you can get sponsors. So my very first sponsor, I'll tell you about the first sponsor. It was Bank of America. Now, we live in Los Angeles, California. So what do people think of with Los Angeles? Traffic jam. So I was in a traffic jam. I was hot. I was exhausted. I just wanted to get home. But I look up and I see a billboard for Bank of America. And I said, oh, my God, what if they could be a sponsor of mine? The problem was I hadn't done anything. (laughs) I had an idea. That was it. So I came home. And I basically self-sabotaged. I said, you know, they're not going to want to talk to me. I'm just this little Jewish girl in a kitchen with a cat. And uh, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. They're going to reject me. I don't want any part of that. So I buried it for about two weeks. But my mission to help people was so strong that I did call them. I got the guy who could greenlight the sponsorship. And he said, come on down. So I took my clunker car that I had at the time. The paint was peeling. The upholstery was shot. I put on the one good suit that I had and I drove to Bank of America. He looked at my sponsor proposal and said, yeah, we'll sponsor you. And it was my very first deal. Uh, It was a five figure deal. I wanted to scream, but I had to act like I did this all the time. (laughs) So I shook his hand. I had to wipe all the sweat off my palms. I shook his hand. But man, when I got down to my car, I did the happy desk because there is nothing like the feeling of getting your first sponsor. Not only is the money good, but it's somebody validating what you do and saying, Mm. yes, we believe in you. We want to invest in you. Wow. What an amazing introduction into the world of sponsors. And it led you to this new journey and the journey now that you've been on for some time since that point. And now you're empowering so many other people to do what you did. And you're giving them the guidance that you didn't have, frankly, when you did it. And you did it, I can tell you did it because of your desire, your burning desire, right? You go back to that think and grow rich, your burning desire. And you had the ability to tell your story. And one of the things I love about the way in which you suggest people go about this is the story matters and it's got to be a compelling story and it's okay to be a bit vulnerable. And we'll get into that in a minute. First, let's talk definition. You have a special definition for sponsorships or for sponsors. What is that definition? The definition of sponsorship is connecting a company to people who buy things. So if you know people who buy things, you can get sponsors. So when I was doing the Women's Small Business Expo, by the way, I did it for 10 years. I do a different event now. Maybe we could talk about that. But while I was doing the Women's Small Business Expo, since I was just starting out and I had no experience, 
I researched the women's business market. And I found that women are starting businesses at twice the rate of men and that women make or influence over 85% of the purchasing decisions in America. And that is what I brought to the sponsors. Uh, so you've got to know who you can connect a sponsor to, who your audience is, because that is really the most valuable thing that you have to sell to the sponsors. Mm, yeah. And it's got to be, as you say, it's not about you as the person or the company, it's about them. It's about the sponsor. So speaking of that, I'm going to start with some problems and then we're going to solve these problems through your three-step process. And so here's some of the most common mistakes that you've highlighted in your book. I'm just going to go through them quickly. So I think one of the first things is not charging enough, people not charging enough. Another thing is that they do the thing that I just mentioned a moment ago. They make it all about themselves. They do things like they send large files or they don't do any proofreading. So you only get one shot, right? We're going to talk about that. One of the other things they do is they don't put the right benefits in the proposal, right? And the proposal really, really matters. So putting the right benefits. Another thing is not communicating enough. And so we're going to talk about how we should communicate with our sponsors. So another thing is not asking enough questions. And one of the first things you want to do is prepare and so in order to prepare, you need to understand who the sponsor is, what their needs are. And so I've just highlighted some, there's more, but those are some of the big bucket things that we're now going to tackle bit by bit and solve. And so your book highlights really clearly that there's three parts. It's the preparation, it's to prepare, and then to propose, and then to promote. And so let's go through each one of those and highlight each one brings a key part of having a successful strategy. So let's talk about preparing first. I'm a big researcher. I love learning and understanding people. And so when you're looking for sponsors, it stands to reason that you should do the same. Why is it so important to prepare? And what are some of the building blocks that you think are most important for that part? Okay. Well, I work with a lot of people like you who are very entrepreneurial and they just want to get to it. They, they're chomping at the bit to get the sponsorship, to get that funding, to get the resources, but you really got to prepare. That's so important. And by the way, this is money you don't have to pay back. So the preparation of doing that industry standard sponsor proposal is so important. The proposal is the most important, but the least understood document. So you really got to create a good proposal, like you said, with the right benefits, with the compelling things that sponsors want. You want to research, as we talked about, your demographic and give them some really compelling information about that demographic. You want to know how you're going to market what you do. How are you going to get the word out? Because you can include sponsors in the marketing. And then you want to know what is the story that you're going to tell and the way that my company, Sponsor Concierge, helps people in a different way than anybody else in the country is with the storytelling. So you want to, as you say, get vulnerable. You don't want to just put your pretty bio in there that talks about your education and your experience and your accomplishments. I put in my sponsor proposal that I was in the poverty trap, that I was in an abusive relationship. It is not a faceless corporation that's going to sponsor you. It is a human being mm. that's going to make that decision. So the storytelling is so important. If you don't want to tell your own story, you could tell the story of somebody that you've helped through the work that you do, because we're all in different businesses, but we are all in the life-changing business. Mm, yes. And I know that's so important to you. 
So let's talk about this concept of a wish list. You say that, hey, sponsorship and finding sponsorship, it's a numbers game. And so I think a lot of times people come up with a small list and they think that's good. You're advocating for definitely going much bigger than that. So talk about the different types of wish lists and how somebody should be thinking about developing that. Okay, let's talk about that sponsor wish list. So when I was doing the Women's Small Business Expo, what I thought of was, you know, companies like shipping companies and banks, you know, things that small business owners need. But then one day I got a call from Walmart and they weren't even on my radar. And I thought, well, why not Walmart? Because I was doing a Women's Small Business Expo. So women shop at Walmart. (laughs) And Walmart has something called Sam's Club, which is for office supplies. And it's very much business focused. So think of the daily lifestyle of that person that you serve. They get into a car. They brush their teeth, they wash their hair, they buy food, they buy beverage. All of those are really great categories for sponsorship. Don't get locked into one category. Mm -hmm. Also, a lot of people, their wish list is 20 companies or less because they think of what we call the love marks, the companies that you use, the companies that you recommend. We want to go beyond that. We want to put at least 50 to 100 companies on that wish list because the more leads you have in any kind of sales, the more successful you're going to be. Mm, yeah, I think that's a really good point that we sort of go to the ones that we know the best, the ones that we use, but it may be something that we don't use. But one of the things you advocate for is if you do land that sponsorship deal, you should start using those products so that you can speak with conviction about them. Speaking of understanding the sponsor, part of preparation and part of preparing for having that really, really strong proposal is understanding them, understanding what they're all about. What's your advice for making sure that you're able to really understand the sponsors that you're targeting? First of all, go to their website, look at the about page of their website, look at the press room of their website, because the press room has their press releases and their media releases, and it tells how they message what the company does. Look at the investor relations part of the website, if they have an investor relations part, and then go one step further and maybe look a little round bit at their social media, because their social media will also tell the story, who they are, what demographics they want, what their campaigns are. Another way to research your potential sponsors that I just absolutely love is Google Alerts. Mm. You go to alerts.google.com and whatever the company is that you're looking to have as a sponsor, put them in there. So anytime a story comes out about that company, it gets fed into your email. That's a great way to learn about your prospective sponsor. Love, love, love that. Great tips, super tactical and specific. Well, let's go back a little bit and say, okay, how do we find these companies? If it's not a company that we love and we use already, what's your suggestion on how to find these companies to begin with? Because we've talked about how to research them, but how do we find them to begin with? There's a couple of different ways to find them. Uh, One is LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is a little hit or miss because you could go to LinkedIn and probably that person on LinkedIn is not the person who could greenlight the sponsorship. But you could do that. If you see somebody doing something similar to what you're doing, you could see who their sponsors are. And a lot of people say, well, Linda, isn't that budget spent? Absolutely not. So let's say that you serve moms, the mom market. Go to a mom conference. Go to you know something like that and see who their sponsors are. 
and you don't have to educate them about the value of what you're doing because they're in that space already. But my favorite, favorite way to find your sponsors is sponsor directories because somebody has already researched that company. They give you the person's name, their title, their contact information and everything. Also, not every company has initiatives in sponsorship. A lot of people call me and they want to work with Apple Computer. Now, Apple does nothing in sponsorships, virtually nothing. They have no initiatives, but if you don't know that, you'll try them, you'll get frustrated, you'll say, ah, this doesn't work. Mm -hmm, no, mm -hmm. it does work. You just got to do it in the right way with the right companies that have initiatives. That's right. And I worked for Tesla and I know that they don't do that either. So you got to pick. There's so many companies that do have a budget. There's so many companies that will sponsor you. So don't lose sleep over that one company that doesn't have that as part of their overall strategy. So let's talk about now. Now we know how to find them. We know how to research them. Now let's talk about how we approach them. And there's two things that stand out to me from both our conversation and reading your book. One is a pitch letter. Another is like a telephone script. Do those do the same function, but in different ways? And talk a little bit about the building blocks of each of those. Okay. Well, a lot of sponsors have told me things off the record the past 20 years. And one of them is they don't want to be surprised by a phone call. Now, mm. I did that in the beginning with Bank of America. I kind of cold called and got the right person. And I did that with FedEx and a, a lot of my initial sponsors. But nowadays, they say they want you to introduce yourself by email. So that is the pitch letter, that email that introduces you. Now, I always say it's not a one and done. You may have to send a few emails because they get flooded with email. And here's where LinkedIn does come in and where we do recommend LinkedIn. Because if you know that person who could greenlight the sponsorship and you find them on LinkedIn, send them a direct message because that gets past all that email clutter. So mm. that's your email. Now, when they get your email and they say, hey, let's have a talk, that is when the telephone script comes in really handy. You'll need two telephone scripts. One is for voicemail and one is for if you actually talk to a human being. Now, your first conversation with your sponsor should be what we call a fact-finding expedition. Don't go right into your presentation. Remember, don't make it all about you, but make it about them. Have them open up to you. Say, hey, what are your marketing goals and how can I help you? What are your upcoming campaigns? Things like that. They'll want to know that you've done a little research, but then you can ask them some questions too. Yeah. Let's talk about both of the email or the, the direct message on LinkedIn and the, and the phone call. You've given some questions and it's discovery, right? You and I are both sales. You got to know the customer. You got to understand them. You can't sell them something if you don't first understand them. So what is the initial... I'll call it cold outreach because you're reaching out cold, although you may have warmed them up through having cool. a relationship on LinkedIn, which I'm a big LinkedIn guy. So I think if you can nurture a relationship on LinkedIn and before you go in super cold, maybe you've established a relationship and then you can have a, a much easier time opening that door. But what does that initial message look like? What are some of the, I mean, if there's a blueprint or a recipe that you think people should follow, what is that? LinkedIn is different than an email because a LinkedIn message is really short and it's a little mysterious. <laughs> Here's what we found works on LinkedIn. You just say, hi, I've got a cool project I'm working on. I would love to get your feedback on it. Can we talk soon? And that is it because with LinkedIn, you can't really send a long message. It's not proper etiquette. 
And then you can either put your real name or your first name. Now, the reason why you might want to put your first name and not your full name is that they might Google you and say, hey, is this person worth me talking to? So mm -hmm. you would just put Billy rather than your full name. And we found that that gets a lot of results on LinkedIn. If you just send a very quick message like that, you know, don't give too many details because then it leads you to a conversation sooner. That's great. No, great. I love that. I'm so with you on the long message thing on LinkedIn. What about on an email? What does that look like? On an email, you could do a little bit of a longer messaging, of course. So the email introduces you. It introduces what you're doing. But once again, no real long emails. One of my pet peeves is a long email. So make it short, make it to the point. Sponsors are kind of type A personalities. They want you to bottom line it for them, get to the point, and then just move it into a conversation as soon as you can. Don't just keep sending emails and texts back and forth. With sponsorship, you want to have something called conversations because conversations create relationship and rapport and sponsorship is a relationship business. Yes. So, so, so true. Okay. How about the all important follow-up? Where does that play in and why is that so, so critical? Oh my God. Your fortune is definitely in your follow-up. So the follow-up is important because with sponsorship, you don't usually close the sale on the first call. So you want to have a series of conversations. They want to know they can trust you because sponsors are trusting you with money but they're also trusting you with their reputation and their brand image. Remember what happened with Tiger Woods. Remember what happened with Subway. One bozo can ruin a brand image. So they want to get to know you a little bit. Always send them things when you say you will. Be on time or early to any appointments, even your phone appointments with your sponsors. If you can see them and have a one-on-one -on -one you know, like I did with Bank of America, do that because then you can mm. their body language a little better. And of course, a Zoom call is good because then you can see face to face and it is the closest thing to an in-person one-on-one appointment. Yeah. And one of the things that stands out from your book is this advice that you give about speaking slowly mm -hmm. over the phone, because I think people rush and they want to talk so fast <laughs> and they, you know, they're trying to get it all out there, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is slow it down a beat. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And mm -hmm. you're going to show a lot more confidence if you have some pausing and you're a little bit slower on your delivery, especially yeah. over the phone. Is that right? Absolutely. I could talk really fast, but in my speaker training, I've learned to talk slower, enunciate. When you leave a voicemail for your sponsors, front load it, which means give your phone number in the beginning. And then when you're closing it out, leave a phone number at the end and talk slowly because it, it just sounds more professional. Mm, any other advice on the voicemail? Oh, wow. Let's see. Like I said, the voicemail, get to the point. Also, oh, here's another good advice with voicemail. Tell them where you're from because sponsors have told me they want to know where you're located because they want to know, okay, well, when I call this person back, is it too early to call them? Is it too late? So here's what I say. Hi, this is Linda Hollander. My corporate office is located in Los Angeles, California, and here's my phone number. Now, it could be, it could be like you could be working in your kid's bedroom or something. <laughs> Call it your corporate office and then pick the biggest city that's close to you. Say you're in Peoria, Illinois. Say I'm in the Chicago area because Chicago, everybody knows. 
Mm, that's great advice. Okay, so you say that time spent learning and preparing could make the difference between failure and success in the sponsor game. So everything that we just covered is that part of the equation. And ultimately, the goal is to get some sort of benefit from the sponsor. But there's different types of benefits. Talk about that, cash and kind, that sort of thing. Okay. The industry definition of sponsorship is a cash or an in-kind fee paid for commercial use of a property. But I, I don't like that definition. I think it's clunky. It's got too many buzzwords in it. So you could get cash or you could get in-kind benefits. Now, in-kind benefits are valuable because they're budget relieving. You can get rental cars. You could get hotel rooms. You could get airline flights. So it relieves your budget. You could get printing if you need printed materials. You could get food. You could get beverage. You could get all kinds of things. But the big daddy of all in-kind is media. And I've gotten like a radio station to give me $25,000 worth of benefits and not a dime came out of my pockets. They gave me 30-second spots, 60-second commercials, sponsor spotlights. Uh, I got visibility on the website, and I was driving, and I heard my own commercial. (laughs) I almost crashed the car, but it was a really very surreal experience. Man, you want media uh, like yours for whatever you're doing because you want to get the word out there, and you want to get as much media as possible. Mm, yeah. Love, love, love all of that. And a great point about the media. I think that could be overlooked easily. So let's talk now about part two, which is proposed, which we've already covered some of those building blocks. So I want to like fill in what we missed. So there's a lot that goes into it. But one of the things you highlight is quite common for people to screw this up and to make a mistake by sending a non-industry standard proposal. And to your point, and I think I already mentioned this, but it's like, if you mess this up, you may not get part two or take two, you may not get that advantage. Therefore, you got to do it well the first time. So cover page, let's start there. What's in the cover page? Short description of what you do. And I like putting all of your contact information on the cover page and every page of the sponsor proposal. Also, you want to make the main benefit to the sponsor. So for instance, my main benefit to the sponsor was connect your brand to the $1.7 trillion market of women business owners. So you want to put that main benefit on the cover page. You want to put down your sponsor benefits, your demographics, your marketing plan. If you have testimonials, definitely put your testimonials there. The advisory board, if you're in some kind of a mastermind group, you could turn that into the advisory board because sponsors want to know that you hang out with good people. Mm. (laughs) And then, of course, the storytelling. Yes, yes, yes. And we we highlighted that. And it's just such an important thing to underscore because you talk about this like transformational moment that people have. People love hearing that and people buy from people, right? There's maybe a company, you're a company, they're a company, but ultimately it's people that make the decision. And so get vulnerable, talk about that transformational moment. There's two sides to it. There's the you story. Then there's kind of like the founder story, perhaps. And then there's maybe the company story. Do you suggest doing both, picking one? What's your suggestion on how to decide how to frame that out? I kind of like doing both. One example is Susan G. Komen because it was started by Nancy Brinker 
in her garage. It's kind of an interesting origin story because her sister was Susan G. Komen and she told her husband, well, I want to start something in honor of my sister who died from breast cancer. And her husband said, great, you could use the garage as your office. Just don't call any of our friends, please. And the moment he pulled his car out of the driveway, that's exactly what she did. <laughs> he started calling the friends and everything. So there is the story of her sister. And then there's the story of the property. What you're offering up for sponsorship, that entity is called the property. So there's her story, her personal story, and then the story of Susan G. Coleman of how, yeah, this is what happened to my sister. And that's why I started this, because I want to prevent this from happening to as many women as possible. Mm, I want to underscore what you just said about the property. And this stood out so clearly from our first conversation is I'm not just a podcaster. I'm a media company. And your suggestion is to not just look at the downloads that you have for your episodes. And again, the listener of this show, they're primarily podcasters. Let's think about it from their perspective. It's not just your show and what your show is doing. It's much broader than that. Can you speak to that a little bit? So a lot of podcasters, they make the mistake of saying, well, I'll give you 30 second commercials and 60 second commercials, and you're going to get a little money here and there for that, but it's not going to be a game changer. If you get thousands of dollars, and most of our clients get between $10,000 and even up to $100,000, we want you to do what I call the, the year round promotions and call yourself a media company. Because if you call yourself a podcaster, you may be pigeonholed a little bit and there may have be a ceiling on what you can earn. So you probably do podcasting, you probably do social media, email marketing, all of those other things, even speaking webinars, you know, those are all great benefits of what you do. So yeah, definitely call yourself a media company and not a podcaster and even call it a show. We found that that works better. Mm, yeah, it's a good distinction. And to your point, you know, if you have a social media following and you don't talk about that, you're doing yourself a disservice. So package everything. They're all opportunities for you to create the visibility to connect your audience with them as the company, which going back to your definition of a sponsorship, let's talk about activation and, and how we should mention activation within the proposal. What exactly does that mean? Okay. Well, I think we're on the third step, which is promote. So let's talk about how to promote your sponsors and do that activation. The process is you'll have a series of conversations. You agree on a price, you go to contract, and then usually you get the money in one physical check. Once I have a contract or an agreement signed, I start activating. So for instance, if I told the sponsor, I would put their logo on my website with a hyperlink and a little blurb about their company. I do it even before I get that check because what they have to do is set you up as a new vendor and it may take a little while for the payment to come. I have never, ever been burned. Now you start promoting that sponsor. You start doing what, the what you told the sponsor you would do for them. If you want to do signage, if you want to do logos, if you want to do press releases, award presentations, if you want to be a spokesperson, you know, you start doing all that stuff for the sponsors. To tell you the truth, I like to add a little bit of extra. So sometimes I'll give them something extra that we didn't even have in the agreement because what I want to get is what's called the renewals. Let's talk mm, about renewals. Yes. If a company likes you, they will fund you this year, then next year, and then next year. And I've had that with FedEx, 
I've had that with Citibank. My clients have had multi-year contracts and renewals with Dole Foods and Black & Decker, just to name a few. So that's kind of really what you want because that's your cash machine. How mm. do you get those delicious renewals? First of all, you contact the sponsor quarterly and send them a report of exactly what you're doing. You take copious notes of everything you're doing to promote that sponsor. And you tell them about it at least every few months. You can also do it informally. So when I had American Airlines as a sponsor, I did an interview and I actually mentioned American Airlines. So then I got back to my home office and I just shot an email to her saying, hey, I just mentioned you on a station. They've got 75,000 listeners. And she emails me right back. Thank you so much. So that's kind of informal sponsor relations. And they renewed with me, too. So there's formal and there's informal relationships. Too many people, not the people that I train, but too many people, you know, get the, the sponsorship and then they don't communicate. And then a year later, they put their hand out for more money. Well, the sponsor's thinking like, well, what'd you do for me? Why would I give you more money? So you don't want that thought to come in their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's going back to the mistake that you see so commonly made is you get this money and then you disappear. Why would they want to give you money again? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so you need to have both of those channels, informal and informal, right? So you have a, a set time or maybe you each quarter, you have a very specific thing that you're talking about. I want to break that down. One thing that you also mentioned, which I also want to highlight, you said take notes. But another thing that you talk about is document everything. So take photos, take videos. These are all opportunities for you to highlight how you're supporting your sponsor. So what's in the fulfillment report? This is something that you say you can break down like all the different things that you've done to help support and, and really fulfill what you've said you're going to do. The fulfillment report, first of all, you want to remind the sponsor why they're funding you, you know, like because they're not thinking about you. So they may have forgotten, you know, hey, here's why we're working together. Here's the benefits that we're providing you. So remind them of their benefits, first of all. Any media that you've gotten, you want to put it there. Any ways that you have promoted and branded that sponsor, you also want to put that there. And then you also want to have time in their conversation. And this is really hard. And it was so hard for me. You also want to have time in that conversation to say, hey, what do you like about our program? And what would you change about our program? Because I did have a bank sponsor who said, well, we really don't like this. We want to change this part of your program. And I said, okay, if we do, can we have that conversation and they said yeah and then you know they renewed with me they stayed because we listened so you don't want to have what i call residue build up where they don't like something that you're doing but they don't tell you you really want to keep the lines of communication open it's not fun to hear criticism but if you show them that you're willing to work with them, that's going to really solidify the relationship. Again, coming back to that word relationship, which is the foundation of having a strong, tight partnership. Speaking of partnership, you say that you could kind of interchange partner or sponsor and, and get a feel for what's going to be the right terminology. Speaking of terminology, you suggest calling it an agreement, not a contract. What are the building blocks? And you have a one page agreement. What are the things that are most important to have in a, a solid sponsorship agreement or partnership agreement? First of all, you uh, yeah, you want to have a sh the shorter the better. We have a one page agreement that is you know tighter than a six page. And the reason I prefer agreement is because some people have a negative association with the word contract because we've all signed a bad contract. Yeah, yeah. 
an agreement is a little bit more palatable than a contract. So in the agreement, you want to have, okay, here's what your role is as the sponsor. And to tell you the truth, it's usually to, to give you the money. And here's what my role is. And it sets up a beautiful relationship because everybody's clear on what they're doing. You want to have what's called an arbitration clause. If for some reason we can't perform this, here's what's going to happen. Usually I don't like to get an attorney involved in a sponsorship deal because they want to put too many extra things on there. And then that's pretty much it. The length of time the sponsorship takes place. And that's it. It's usually, it's a pretty, pretty easy document. And then there's something called force majeure, which is, okay, let's say you do an event and something happens and you can't do that event, you know, some act of quote unquote act of God or whatever, like, okay, how are you going to remedy that? And it's usually just to reschedule as we've seen this year. Mm, do you put the right of first refusal in the agreement or is that something that's just case by case basis? Uh, the right of a first refusal. Yeah, that should go in the agreement. Got it. Okay. So the last thing I want to talk about before we uh, wrap up here is I want to uh, underscore something that I think is so foundational to all of this. And that is understanding your demographics. And there's so much that goes into this because it's not just, oh, you know, the age or something like that. You know, buying habits, you know, income bracket, you know, marital status, you know, diversity, you know, psychographics, which I love that. Pick a couple of those or any ones that you think are most important. Age is obviously the first thing that comes to mind, but why is it so, so, so important? Once again, back to that definition, sponsors want you to connect them to people who buy things. So who are these people? There's the hard data that you talked about, age range, gender mix, all that stuff. But what's more important, I think, is the psychographics, the buying habits. What did they buy? Where do they go on the internet? What's important to people? What makes them get up in the morning? Uh, with entrepreneurs, the most important thing to them is freedom and independence because a lot of people, when they go into business for themselves, they'll take a pay cut for a little while because it's worth it to have that freedom and that liberty that's on every one of our coins. So you want to know all of those things about your demographic. Mm, yeah, so, so important. And I lied. I do have one more thing that I just thought of. And you brought this up is this the money that's flowing into nonprofits, especially in this COVID environment. You said that sponsors are still still active. They're still doing things for virtual events, but what's happening in the current landscape considering the pandemic and everything that's going on now? A couple of things are happening. First of all, I want to blow away a myth that sponsors are not funding because they are. They're just doing it a little bit differently. 80% of sponsors will fund virtual events. Most sponsors will fund things like podcasts and media that you do and things that are virtual. So that's a good place to be in where you are. I used to suggest having a charitable partner. Now it is absolutely necessary to show how you're giving back to the community because it's all about image advertising. So you have to show that. So that's those are the things that have really changed in the COVID environment. Mm, okay. I want to spend the rest of our time talking all about you and talking about where people can find you. I know that the sponsor concierge is one place, attractingcorporatesponsors.com. You have an amazing, amazing program, which packages all of this and makes it so, so easy for anyone that really wants to take all of the concepts that you have and much more and make it so simple. So can you describe the, the program that you have and, and maybe any listener, you know, where they can go to find it and, and how it will benefit them? Okay. Well, the best thing to do is go to successwithsponsors.com. That's successwithsponsors.com. I have a free gift for you there. 
the number one secret to getting sponsors. So you'll get it at successwithsponsors.com. You're also going to see how you and I can talk. You and I can do what we call a free sponsor strategy session. And the sponsor strategy session is magic. We are going to brainstorm together. I'm going to come up with ways that you can make a lot of money with your sponsors. We're going to identify what you do, what your demographic is, and how really to be successful in the world of sponsors. So the best thing to do is just to go to the website, successwithsponsors.com. Mm, love it. And you're also on social media. I checked out your YouTube channel, ton of gold there. So check out, it's under the Wealthy Bag Lady and find her on LinkedIn. You can find her on Twitter. So Wealthy Bag Lady again on Facebook, it's Sponsor Concierge. So there's tons of ways that people can find you. And I love that you are doing what you set off to do, which is to help other people. And you, you just have such a giver's heart and you're giving people something that can literally change their life. And what could be more valuable than that? Linda Hollander, thank you for being on For the Love of Podcast. Thank you. And Billy, I love what you do. You're going to help so many people. And it's an honor to be on your show. Well, that's all, folks. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For the Love of Podcast. If you found some value in all of the nuggets of information from Linda on this show about the world of sponsorships, then you're going to love the next show I'm going to release because it's going to be an extension of this show. We're going to explore concepts that we didn't get to cover in the interview that I gained because I read her book. We're also going to dive a bit deeper into some of the concepts that she shared on this show to provide even more in-depth information. So again, if you like this one, definitely check out that next special popcorn episode that I'm going to release later this week. If you like this show, I just have one ask this week, and that one ask is share this show with one person that you know. That's it. If you know a podcaster, if you know somebody that wants to start a podcast, or if you know somebody that's interested in the podcast space, please let them know about this show. It would mean the world to me, and the best way for any podcast to grow is through its listener base. So until next time, please remember, everything we do, we do it for the love of podcasts.